0: is the
1: Roaring Elf and Podcast for the 19th of April of 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here is my hotel room invading co-host, Dave.
0: Hey, hey, hey. Back
1: in my hotel room again.
0: Indeed, here we are.
1: Getting a steady relationship this way.
0: Another <laughs> another day, another summit episode ready to rock and roll.
1: Yeah, this was the second and sadly last day of the DataWorks Summit. So, as promised, we will go through our experiences over the day. Anything general you want to talk about before we go through the items?
0: So, we do have uh, still oh, yes. a giveaway, I believe. Um, yes, yes, yes.
1: The CodeMotion free passes. We talked about them yesterday already. Yeah. We still have one pass left. So, if you want to get a free pass to the CodeMotion motion event in Amsterdam on the I think 8th and 9th of May, which is fairly quickly actually all you have to do is send an email to codemotion2018 at roaringalpha.org put in it, you want to have a ticket and we will make sure that your request gets passed on do keep in mind, only one ticket left so don't delay mail today
0: that works for me
1: (laughs) alright, thanks for reminding us for that one Apart from that, let's uh, go in it.
0: Yeah, let's get to keynotes. So, Dave, what did you do for the keynote? Well, I think as I drove the last one, I'll let you drive this one. <laughs>
1: nice. All right. First keynote we had was from Frank Sauberlich from Teradata. Uh, it was entitled Driving High Impact Business Outcomes from Artificial Intelligence. hmm Um, Basically, he was talking about how it's it's a bit of the, I would almost say, old story where there's the conversions of big data and cloud computing and whatever libraries and TensorFlows and whatever have this conversions where deep learning becomes interesting. Mm -hmm. And apparently, Teradata is, um, I'm not going to say change, but concentrating more on the deep learning aspects of things. And he was pretty much explaining a couple of uh, customer use cases where they did something for the customer that made their old style, between air quotes, machine learning uh, models mm-hmm. work a lot faster by actually implementing them in deep learning. At first, when I st- we started talking about that, I thought that does not compute. I mean, if it's machine, uh, and why would you want to do that? But actually, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but one of the use cases he talked about was for Danske Bank uh, for fraud detection. Mm-hmm. And he gave some numbers where in the uh, old machine learning style, they caught like 40% of fraud cases, which is actually reasonably okay. But the bad thing was that 99.9% of the cases that were flagged were false positives. Not so good. And that's annoying, yeah. And with the deep learning approach they used, that actually they improved the the, 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 the true positives
0: mm-hmm.
1: and improved the false positives. So oh, that was nice. a good thing. So that was good. And actually, the way that they did that also illustrated what they meant by going from machine learning to deep learning. because. For typically, for a fraud detection thing, what you do is you take a lot of features like um, time between interactions, locations, uh, spending habits, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, behavior Put th- profile. Exactly. Pull yeah, sort of- it in columns, do a regression or a classification. Sorry, a classification algorithm on that, and you will get your yes, no fraud, yes, no uh, results. Mm-hmm. What these guys did, actually, that this was a team from Teradata, they took those features and around, you have to see it as a matrix, where you have the data points, and around it, they put all the features. And that way, you kind of have a pixel image. Because every feature in machine learning is always a number between 0 and 1. And that can represent a, a, a grayscale or a color, or a, he called it a pixel. So whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Mm. And then they use a CNN, a convoluted neural network, to do image recognition to see if the images were, I would say, the word outlier or not,
0: okay. which is actually a very
1: cool idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that apparently gave them a yeah, a quite good improvement.
0: I have actually, now you mentioned that particular approach, I have actually heard of an organization doing something very similar in a cybersecurity world. I think it was a solution by... Um, HP this was probably about a year or so no, they were doing something very similar where they had relationships between users um, traffic types and all that sort of thing and the same sort of approach so that sort of applying deep learning to images that were generated from the uh, the different features
1: but yeah interesting so yeah, that was uh, the, for me the most interesting part of the of the talk he also talked a little bit about uh, well the challenges to deploy ai and he did go very fast across that you need to have the data you need to have a strategy in place that's a very
0: yeah yeah big data is community. very difficult without data
1: yes exactly you need to have technology but that's pretty much uh, solutionized uh, there's a problem with operationalization, uh, mm-hmm. as he said said, not making it out of the lab, which is a big problem indeed, yeah. and finding the talents, and that's where it became a little bit of a promo spot for Teradata. We can have this service for you. But it wasn't too heavy-handed, so I'll okay. wave it through, no problems. He gave a second use case without a name. He called it Jet Engine Predictive Maintenance, so it must have been either Boeing or Airbus or Rolls-Royce or something like that. I don't know and they're the usual the the normal things with image recognition and audio file spectrographs again to vibration yeah yeah. the normal stuff so not much more to say he had two quotes at the end which which he ended with logically enough first one which I agree with is always start by identifying a high business impact if you don't have a business case for the thing it will never get out of the lab so that's definitely a good one and also very important think about operationalization from the start Mm. Yeah. don't start playing around and hope you can do something that it. start with a good business case and this is how it's actually going to have to run yeah. and then build towards a solution or else you will get in that yeah it's going to be a,
0: it'll, it'll end up being a science project for life exactly
1: so that was about it uh, quick and easy mm-hmm. not, no, not much uh, more to say about that after that we came to Enza Iannopolo a lady from Forrester Research who talked about embracing GDPR to improve your business practices in the digital age. Mm -hmm. So this was um, the visionary speech for today, let's say. It wasn't, uh, again, just like yesterday, not really the visionaries like we had in the previous ones who were more of an abstract um, sky build, whatever, thought experiment, let's say. This was uh, very much about GDPR and how uh, Forrester Research has seen at their customers how they're thinking about GDPR, what they're working on GDPR, and so on. So I took quite a bit of notes, but uh, this is actually a keynote that might be interesting for businesses that haven't done much with GDPR yet to have a look at. um, Or maybe contact uh, the lady in question, maybe she wants to do something for you as well. (laughs) But uh, a lot of things for me, because uh, in my day job, we have been talking about GPR a lot, so a lot of things already rang through for me as well, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to name a couple here. Um, it's more than just regularization. It's something that's going to be pervasive across the whole company. It's not just ticking a few boxes. You have to change a culture. You have to change the way you do things, the way you think about things. That's a very important uh, thing to note. It's not just an ISO certification you're getting here.
0: Yeah, it's 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 more in in terms of it's breadth of impact it's more yep. like PCI and PCI assessment. Um, even like worse than that because PCI is still
1: in the end a list of checkboxes while GDPR is by design a bit vague because what does it mean to have security and privacy by design you have to fill it in yourself
0: yeah So I I would argue the detail of PCI DSS is just as vague, but I I can agree because PCI DSS I haven't
1: really myself worked with it, so if you say that, I I agree.
0: It is very much like that sort of thing. Yeah, you have to go through that. But it is—it's not just a bit like yesterday's conversation around David Walker's session. It's not just tools and technology. It's not just process and procedures. It's business culture as well. Okay. Yeah.
1: Fair. Agree. Uh, second point, it's a global thing. It's not just the EU. Yes, GDPR is a EU thing, but any company that works with the EU or is from the US is also t- working with EU. And the moment you touch EU data or EU customers, you're affected by it. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, every big company is preparing for GDPR, but yeah. regardless which side of the pond they're on.
0: Yeah.
1: So that was also something. Also, it's uh, 25th of Mar- of May Sorry, is when the GDPR becomes effective. That's just the moment it starts. This is not where it finishes. So don't go for the 25th of May and say, okay, we've, we've made it, it's done. That's when it actually starts, because it's going to be a continuous maintenance cycle to keep this regularization conf- compliance and so on.
0: Wouldn't surprise me, I don't know the details, but wouldn't surprise me if it's going to be regular recertification required, like, again, like PCI DSS every 12 months, Apparently, you need to recertify. it's not a recertification thing. Uh, as far
1: as I'm, I'm basing mm-hmm. myself on the talk here, yeah, yeah. it's more like you can expect a, a, a controller to knock on your door at any moment, mm. even if nobody complained about it. Yeah. Just knock on the door, show them what you did. Yeah. At any time of the day. So that's why it's just, it just has to be in the normal way of business. Yeah, be, Everything you do has to be in there. You can't just, oh, we have a, a review next month. Let's... Uh, Clean up all the all the garbage mm-hmm. so it looks nice. You have no idea what's going to happen, and of course the, the penalties can be severe. It's two to four percent of your revenue, if I if I remember correctly, that can be quite uh, quite interesting. Um, yeah, privacy by design and by default. That's a nice one. That's uh, one thing actually from my Microsoft hat I I didn't know because in the in Holland the Windows Ten was actually uh, failed. Mm. and with the new update that's coming with Windows 10 it's been accepted again because all of the privacy checkboxes is now off by default <laughs> <laughs> it's these small little things but I think it's good it, yeah like, yeah uh, other things she talked about, yeah, includes external partners. Just make, don't just make sure that your GDPR compliance, but your partner ecosystem. If you hand off your data to that partner, they need to be uh, compliant as well. Because if you get a request to delete information from a data service, as it's called, then you have to pass on to that to that partner, and yeah, have some 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 certainty that the partner will actually also be compliant of that. Um, she also talked about GDPR being part of general risk assessments, which makes sense. Um, also an interesting thing which I never thought yeah, I have thought about it was nicely formulated it's possible to create sensitive data from non-sensitive data sources
0: mm, Yeah.
1: and I've usually heard this in the reverse where you have sensitive data, you cut it into pieces to make it no, no longer sensitive and have to prevent it from being joined again, that's one I knew about, mm. but you can actually get enough information from disparate sources in, yeah. internally and when you join them up they become, they become. so that's yeah. definitely something you have to be careful to as well um, one thing, oh, see, then also went to the not just the organization itself, but the customer point of view. Customers will have some rights on the GDPR, and apparently, what's happening is that customers are, trying to, are going to use GDPR to test the trustworthiness of a company. I'm going to ask you to delete my information, and then I'm going to ask you to give me information. That's the two rights I get as a consumer <laughs> to do this. And if you can give me my data, then I no longer trust you. Yeah. So she sees this as a a a a moment where a company can actually position their 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 values and their trustworthiness by being GDPR compliant. So seeing as a positive way of looking at it. Uh, I hadn't heard the, it yet. The, so. the cynic
0: in me might just say <laughs> that uh, they, they might just keep your data and then if customer request data but delete flag was set to true, then just return null.
1: <laughs> um, well, there's ways around that. Of course, an audit will, will show that. Yeah, of course, of course. But uh, I mean that's still something you need to do you have that extra flag in there and if you're going to do that maybe just do the right thing
0: yeah yeah but you're right but but I mean, to me so to me that that's a little it's a little bit naive to say that that plus that equals trust i i am not that trustworthy <laughs> but maybe that's just me you're just a cynic you have to well be. there is that there is that
1: embrace your inner self man come on uh, after that, she just went on to put some extra things. She, I see, this is a bit fuzzy, let's say. Additional bonus results from implementing, from implementing GDPR are improved customer experience, better data strategy, and increased efficiency. Okay, increased efficiency, that's always something you can throw in everywhere. <laughs> that's yeah, I don't care. Improved customer experience, yeah, that's a trustworthiness thing again, so that might be a result of it. But the data strategy, I do believe. Because in my world, when people go to the cloud, that's when people start thinking about security and then a lot of skeletons fall out of the closet. Mm -hmm. GDPR will have the same effect on their privacy, their their risk management on their data uh, stores and things like that. So that will have a positive impact there, I think. Um, Let's see. I mentioned a couple of use cases or customer showcases, let's say. And my personal feeling there was hey, it, apparently if you do GDPR correctly you can actually do good PR marketing by putting it out there that we company XYZ we are GDPR compliant trust us come and buy with us so apparently it's, it's been marketized already she <laughs> so ended with uh, some uh, tips about uh, if you haven't done anything yet it's getting very close so what you should, should you do now mm-hmm. I was all great uh, to, to, to be educated here uh, was a bit yeah focus on data initiatives at high risk and then focus on cloud, 3rd part and sensitive data. Seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. And when you've done that, prioritize the risks. Okay, I, I, I believe that. That's good. Other tips you gave is have a roadmap. Even if you're not ready yet for GDPR, make sure you have a roadmap how you will become ready with GDPR. So if you get an audit and you can show, yeah, we're working on it. Here it is. Show willingness,
0: basically. Exactly.
1: Show that you want to do it. And, uh, yeah, ended up with a couple of other things there. There's different rights. You have the right to be forgotten. Data retention is an important one as well. That's something that's uh, going to be coming back in some sessions here. With, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about the details yet, but data retention is a very important one as well. And GDPR doesn't tell you how long you should retain your data, but you should have a data retention policy, which is good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it is is correct dependent on the data that you're collecting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, yes, he ended with a quote that uh, GDPR actually it should be, you should, it should allow you to do more with data and not less. It shouldn't always be the blocker it you fear it to be. Uh, yeah, we'll see how that works. So that was, uh, I forgot the name Enza Iannopoli, uh, Iannopolo, sorry. Um, nice talk, very fast, very fluent, good presentation. Mm-hmm. And actually, for people that haven't gotten into GDPR yet, I think it was a, a nice. I, I won't call the wake-up call, but uh, I think it should make you think about what you should do, and maybe even give you a couple of handholds about how to start working on this if you haven't started yet. Yeah, there was also a straw poll uh, about who's been, who is already GDPR compliant, who's working on it, who knows he's not going to be ready, and who thinks GDPR. What is that? <laughs> yeah, and the little graph was uh, majority is uh, we're working on it, uh, a minority uh, that is third highest was we're ready the second highest was uh, we will be late and we had 10 people saying uh, we don't know what it is
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i guess those people still hung over from the party from yesterday yeah i would guess so so one thing i will say is that uh, from this point onwards i was totally uh, believing that gdpr is indeed as you pre- predicted it the team of this uh, uh, data work summit
0: it's funny that me being right but it does occasionally happen. I, I say we have prior knowledge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you read the internet and I don't.
0: <laughs> Damn those internets.
1: Um, after that, nicely following on after a nice dissolve, as I say, was a actual demo on the keynote stage mm-hmm. uh, called Are You Ready for GDPR by Jamie and Gesser and Srikant Venkat from Hortonworks. Uh, it's always nice to see VPs doing demos.
0: Yep. How did that go? <laughs> actually went well.
1: <laughs> actually all went well. It was good. I will go, go into detail here because I actually went to a session that pretty much did the same demo with more depth, so we'll talk about it there. Yeah. But basically, they were demoing the, the new uh, data steward service, which was announced two days ago now, yeah. and how that is a combination of the data plane, Ranger Atlas, with APAC and rules and plan. But again, I'll come back to that when I talk about my session about that. All right. Uh, so that was actually fun. it actually took quite some time to do that it was, uh, not just a demo so have a yeah, yeah. Hard to explain Ex- also have presentation explaining the whole the yeah whole but on a higher level learn. so that for the business decision makers that was approachable the session that I went to afterwards was <laughs> way deeper <laughs> down which uh, wasn't a business session at all so I think it's nice, nice. to have both views there yeah, again yeah. when these go on YouTube I think you're going to reference those uh, yeah. in the future and then yeah uh, the keynote, we're going to a bit in time here. It ended with uh, um, Camellia Bitschenkroon, sorry if I butchered that name, from Renault, who talked a bit a little bit about what Renault's doing in big data on IoT. Um, yeah, not much special to talk about there. It was just IoT use case. Uh, it was kind of funny to see that there are three car factors here. You got yeah. BMW, you got the Audi, and you got Renault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's nice. And I talked to the BMW guys as well. They're doing a lot in the driverless uh, car and everything, uh, self-driving cars and stuff like that. So it's uh, interesting times there. Indeed. So basically, that was the keynotes,
0: and then we went out for uh, for a break. And then straight after the break, we're right into it. Yeah, well, and you were <laughs> away. We are into the sessions. Um, well, I skipped the first session
1: actually because I did those. I did uh, some uh, more interviews with. Uh, the showcase, community showcase uh, boots and that's actually going to come out is going to come out next week, Tuesday yeah. in a special episode it's going to make it's going to be a bit of a different episode there with just a little sound bites, uh, but that's going to come out next Tuesday alright but you did go to a session
0: I did indeed so I went to security and time weird windows in streaming behavior analytics um, as you may guess from this or may not uh, but I will inform you. This was an Apache Metron session um, by any other name. So, um, delivered by Simon Ball, who's the um, uh, product manager for HortonWorks um, for the HCP HortonWorks Cybersecurity Platform, um, and uh, contributes code towards the Apache Metron project. Um, this was a technical session. Um, it went fairly deep, fairly quickly. Um, but, you know, covered really focusing on what the profiler is and what the profiler does. Um, the nice thing was that, uh, as always, Simon uh, did some a, a lot of what he showed through live demo. And being Simon, it was all from the dev build that he pulled off GitHub um, last Friday. So, you know... <laughs> Very, very cutting edge stuff. Don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah, don't try this at home unless unless you have a lot of plasters and can live with the odd cut here and there. Um, all went really well, actually, and the the profiler is one of the most interesting and important pieces about Metron. So the the explanations uh, I thought were really good. Um, session was you know fairly well attended, um, but I think the. There was a lot of very uh, good sessions in that first slot, so I think maybe it suffered a little bit from that. But great session, really enjoyed it. Um, I'll be stealing his slides to reuse at a later date, I'm sure. Any main point you can
1: give the listeners?
0: The main points for me would really be um, the profiler is truly wonderful, but... It, it can take you a little bit of time to get into it but once you start to understand how the profiler works it's got a very you know when you're querying the profiler it's got actually a very um, you know almost English syntax to it so you can say you know tell me how many servers a certain user has logged on to in the last um, you know five day or in the last thirty days excluding weekends or something you know things like that and those sort of concepts or you know, if you've got shift patterns or all those sorts of things and you can say you know for certain time windows or um, over the last two years in you know 30 minute time windows you know starting a month ago and you know, all these kinds of things are, are very possible when you're sort of querying the profiler so yeah it was a deep session um, uh, but yeah I enjoyed it yeah well. You're a bit of a Metroid jumpy anyway. I am. Love me some Metron. <laughs> Love it. Um, and yeah, speaking of that, next session.
1: Uh, not about Metroid. Metron, what? sorry.
0: Met- Metroid. Ah. Was for me, because yeah. I was speaking. Yeah, but I want to do my
1: session first, because you, you can't do two sessions on one after the other.
0: Oh, okay then. I, I thought actually you could you could give a review of my session.
1: How about that? No, I specifically didn't take any notes, so you couldn't ask me that. Because <laughs> <Damn laughs> he's going to test me. Anything I <laughs> ask wrong, and uh, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to talk about my uh, my session go first, which was uh, practical experiences using Atlas and Ranger to implement GDPR. Mm-hmm. That was given by Magnus Runeson Rines- sorry, from Svenska Spiel. and that's actually the Finnish, uh, Svenska that's Finland, right? Anyway, one of the Scandinavian countries' official national gambling uh, authority, let's say, they do all the gambling games and stuff like that. Yeah. And they actually have part of their um, charter is that they have to avoid people becoming addicted to gambling. Okay. And in yeah. order to do that, they need to find and get kind of statistics to detect when somebody becomes a risk case so they can do something about that. So that's why they have a lot of big data.
0: Right.
1: Uh, they used to have a Oracle Cognos uh, environment, uh, and they moved that to HTTP uh, 2.6 with Hive. Um, they give more information about the, 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 the shape of their thing, basically. And basically, what the talk was about, um, the, the, the normal thing you would expect, they're using uh, Atlas for uh, lineage and governance and range for policies, but their issue was more, how do we maintain this in a way that it's always maintained? Mm-hmm. As, we, as I said from the keynote it's not the one thing that GDPR thing. it has to be you have to make sure that it's always
0: maintained how do you keep it federal uh, exactly
1: and they were using Oracle Cognos already and have the Oracle model data modeler uh, tool which they continue to use because also they wanted to They wanted to make the change from Oracle with uh, Cognos to HTTP with Hive mm-hmm. without changing any SQL and without making the operators or whatever do anything different wow okay Now, not changing any SQL I'm not entirely sure how they did that but this was a talk about the uh, uh, GDPR related things, so yeah, let's yeah. not go in that one. <laughs> but I think he meant was that the things I wanted to add to make themselves GDPR compliant should not involve changing SQL. That would make sense. Okay, yeah. So basically, what they did is uh, that in the data modeling step, the only thing they ask extra for the the model developers, I would call them, I guess, is that they would add PII tags or something like that to tables that needed or fields that needed. Mm-hmm. And then they wrote a bunch of scripts that actually take the information in from CSV files that they make and from there create the Ranger policies and the Atlas tags. Okay. That way if you change that CSV file, which basically they never change and make them once and that's it, and only when a new data set source is added they need to add a couple of rules, something like that. That's yeah. more of an exception. But those scripts run every day. Mm-hmm. So that if somebody goes manually into Atlas or Ranger script will run, it'll override it again with the how it should be and that way they kind of keep the whole um, uh, management of that thing in the central location okay so i'm not entirely sure if that's the best approach to work although he did say it works very well for them um, they're not very large i mean i can I just put my notes down so i can't say it from my heart but they had 300 uh, real-time event streams coming in and 150 published tables and views which isn't hyper-large, but a reasonable size. Now,
0: did they mention kind of events per second or anything like that? No, they what? didn't.
1: Because okay. I don't think they actually do any real-time processing. It's just that the events come in, get stored, and then get into mm. tables. So that's why the data modeling comes in, I think. Okay. Uh, it was a bit light on the technical details, I must admit. He did show this, the, 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 the content of the CSV files. Uh, he didn't show the scripts. Uh, but that was basically their solution of making it work, and apparently for them, it's a good solution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For me, uh, I mean, if you end- if you accept this, the starting point from we want to keep working with the Oracle data model and we don't want to have to put extra load on the people that working the flow
0: today, mm. it makes sense. Yeah, is it the most efficient way to do it?
1: I'm thinking it's going to be a management nightmare in the end. Those mm. CSV files. That's not the most useful way of looking at that kind of rules mistakes can creep
0: in. I would, yeah, I do want that.
1: And then especially if you're looking at the new tools being added now with uh, with the Atlas and everything around with the data steward and the data plane. Yeah. there's a lot more tooling being set up there. Now, again, this is something that's running today. Yeah, True. And so, something that runs today is always better than something that's going to be better tomorrow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a journey, right? Exactly. All of this, everything that we're talking about, it's all a journey.
1: And he also said that what we did is it works. It's not perfect, and it's yeah. going to continue changing. We, we already know we're going to change the content of the CSV files and so on. But it was a nice way of seeing how a company that actually tackled GDPR and had something... Something exploded in the hotel room, but we are totally unharmed. Something uh, that actually they have GDPR compliance this way. And this Mm. is not only what they did. They did a lot more to get GDPR compliant, of course. But this this is what they did on their data landscape, specifically in the regions for uh, lineage and uh, policies, mainly the access policies of the the whole things. Uh, Not through RBAC, but ABAC, not role-based, but attribute-based using the Atlas Tagging in there. So, on all, I hoped a bit more depth and a bit more fails, failed, what didn't work. That mm-hmm. would be been nice. But, uh, well, he, the talk was called Practical Experience Using Atlas and Range to Implement GDPR, and that was exactly what it was. Very good,
0: very good. Can I talk now? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, that's the next session I went to, dear listeners, was a horrible session by a certain Dave Russell, who you might know from some oh, other things. Oh, that was awesome.
0: So before, <laughs> before I do that, though, I will just give a quick shout-out because um, at the same time as my session was running, um, O2, um, O2's John Ratcliffe and Accenture's Kieran Miller were doing, I'm sure, a very fine double act uh, at the session which was O2's financial data hub going beyond IFRS compliance to support digital transformation another huge title by the way <laughs> uh, but uh, John and I were having a, a bet as to uh, who had the largest audience I'm sure it was me but I wish uh, I wish uh, John and Kieran I hope they had a I hope they had a good session I haven't unfortunately managed to catch up with them since but uh, you, I had, will...
1: you had standing room only so
0: I, I did have standing room only so hey there you go um and with that, yeah, let's let's get into my session.
1: Don't give the entire session, okay? Just give us a summary for people. All right,
0: a summary. Um, first of all, anybody that's listening to this that was in the session, thank you, um, and also thank you to those that uh, gave the questions. Because my favourite part about some of these talks is actually the questions. Because I think the questions give a good um, a good. Signed towards both the understanding of the audience but also the things that are top of mind to the yep. audience so thank you if you were someone that asked a question um so i, I started off with a little bit of audience participation which everybody um that uh, has seen me present at places like this uh, knows that i regularly do and in this case i was asking questions like you know who here is from and then sort of different teams so a cyber security team or that sort of thing um uh, we ran through, you know, are people hands-on or are they more architect and things like that. Uh, also ran through the sort of how are organizations on their big data journey. Are they Hadoop in production or are they just still investigating? This is this is one that I thought was really nice. And over the years of, of going to DataWorks Summit and asking questions like this and, you know, visiting customers and all that sort of thing, the majority of people were putting their hands up, basically saying... We've already got kind of Hadoop in production in some way, shape or form, which I was, that, that's, it was great to see that that volume of hands go up in the audience. And there were still some people evaluating Hadoop-based solutions and some people investigating big data, but no one put their hand up to say they hadn't even got started yet. So that was good. Um, and the the final question I asked was really about how much people knew about Apache Metron, and this the results of this one actually surprised me somewhat because the vast majority of people that put their hands up actually were they were already running it in some way, shape, or form in in sort of lab environment. You know, not very many people were running it in production. Um, you know, a handful of people, but a lot of people were actually already had it spun up and all that sort of thing. So. Um pretty much from then I went through uh, a very simple sort of introduction to first of all, you know why why even consider Metron in the first place? and the answer to that is really it's it's a true big data problem. Um, then went on through to you know the the Apache metron, what it actually looks like, um, and you know what are the the key components that uh, make it all hang together. But the title of the session was Apache Metron in the Real World. So after doing some of the more intro-y stuff, what I really wanted to spend a little bit of time on um, was just a few vignettes, snippets, call them what you want, of organizations actually using Apache Metron. Um, so I talked a little bit about Telstra and, and their journey. You know, Basically from eight months, they went from zero to a fully deployed production solution. Um, utilised across two major brand-new uh, security operations centres, full multi-tenant architecture, and production customers on board. Um, it's a fantastic story, um, and the fact that it all <laughs> happens to be true is is even <laughs> is even better. Um, it, it does. And they they spoke at the DataWorks Summit um, at the end of last year, uh, in the APAC DataWorks Summit. Um, and at that point, I think it was around about October, but don't quote me of that, They had around 13 billion events per month, and that was growing at a rate of about 30% per month. So you can can do the maths to work out where they are today. Um, Talked a little bit about Capital One. Um, They were sort of really quite early adopters of Metron. And if you sort of Google Capital One, uh, Purple Rain and Metron, uh, you'll find information about what they were doing back in, in this case, kind of 2016, 2017 um so they have um, you know quite a, an advanced ecosystem and uh, then went on towards KPN and uh, Qsite. so Qsite have been a been a, um, a customer now for about a year they actually had a session the previous day that I've already talked about but the things I focused on when talking about KPN were the things that I thought were particularly interesting from their talk so the fact that they, this, this platform, Metron, gave them the opportunity to, to really innovate and to really do something, um, you know, extend the platform, something that just would not be possible in the traditional world, um, gave them this fully multi-tenant solution, fully scalable architecture, and really moved to a, a risk-based model away from you know, the standard rule-based stuff. Uh, talked a little bit about sizing and uh, and how uh, you know, the different things to think about when you're sizing Metron and that kind of life cycle over a 3-month, 12-month, 2-year, two 2-years-plus, kind of what that might look like.
1: Yeah, the audience was actually quite interested in that. I mean, I was able to see, I was sitting at the back a bit mm. and saw people scribbling and taking photos of that one. yeah. Yeah, it kind of, kind of, uh, It's good for people that are already playing with it and now they want to go to production. So, okay, now how, what's a good starting point yeah. for this thing?
0: Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that was one of the questions is like, yeah. you know, how, do we, how, how can this be deployed? Um, then really talk a little bit about the ecosystem around Apache Metron. It's great to have an open source project. It's even better if there are other people using it, contributing to it, extending it and so on. Um, so talked very very little bit about PSSC labs that have a apache metron appliance um, yeah you know, it's fully fully certified um, and is there was some news sort of late 2017 when that got released but then uh, early 2018 when cybersecurity malaysia so a government wide cybersecurity agency uh, teamed up with PSSC labs to uh, to d- deploy this and, and operate it um and then probably my favorite little bit of the uh, of the session really was showing um, some of the other ecosystem stuff that's going on which is some work with zoom data and zoom data have built a series of dashboards against Apache Metron and just really walked through um, you know some of the flows some of the dashboards and some of the visualizations including things like um, the sort of relationship based visualizations that um, as, as a human looking at a dashboard or a human looking at some sort of investigation can give you a, a really useful, interesting uh, view of things. So from there, pretty much went into things about, you know, who else is using a Metron. So I've talked a little about automotive use cases, um, telco use cases, um, defence ministries, and basically government-wide initiatives. Um, the final piece around this was really um, talking about how people could, should think about deploying Metron um, kind of larger scale. So how to do an effective phase deployment of Apache Metron. So going through different phases, adding different use cases, different data sources, bringing in different components. And really over, in my case, uh, the case of my uh, particular Design going over three different phases and how you might might consider extending that. So I had uh, lured people into the session with the promise of Roaring Elephant podcast stickers and, in fact, <laughs> did indeed at the end manage to give out quite a few um, and had some, some good questions there as well. So I had a blast delivering it. What was what was your experience as, as someone?
1: Uh... Well, for me, I mean, I never actually went to a Metron uh, mm-hmm. session because... I don't work with it. Yeah, all I knew about it was with the stuff that Dave was talking, is rambling on about on the podcast from time to time. <laughs> so no, it was actually nice, and I especially liked the, the little demo you did. You mm. didn't do a live demo; you did the, the video replay? Yeah, just showing how 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 nicely visible it all gets mm. on there. That was really nice to see that because there's one thing to say: okay, you have to have full uh, open uh, big data thing deployed to have it all gather and whatever. But just seeing how you saw that, that, that graph... Uh, the relationship display, graph yeah, looked like... They, they could, could really flowers see and, yeah. patterns in that thing. That was actually, yeah, uh, that was for me the the thing that I liked best, let's say. Very good. Now I'm a little good. bit uh, distracted here because my laptop just decided to die and my notes are on there, so I just put plugged
0: <laughs>
1: the power in.
0: <laughs> well, in that case, I can I can carry on. and Let me talk about um, the next session I went to, which was... Uh, LLAP, great on-prem and great in the cloud. So this was by Krishnaroth uh, Roth, um, ex works now at Walt Disney, um, and doing some excellent work, I have to say. Really enjoyed this session. Um, he, he went through step-by-step, step, and one of the best things about this is he was very, very clear up front, um, and I can't state this enough because it is really important. Performance is situational. If anything varies between um, you know, his experience and exactly what you're doing, you know, then you really should be benchmarking using your own processes, your own procedures, and so on and so forth. So that being said, um, the use case was really kind of large-scale data ingestion. They were going through a, a migration to cloud, um, AWS in this particular case, Um, They had sort of BI metrics and activity reporting on raw data, Uh, data data sets were largely served via REST API, um, and batch-oriented updates were acceptable to their sort of user base. Um, So in this particular case, they were looking at um, data largely consumed by apps, um, and yeah a lot of the things were things like um ESPN applications that were reporting on things like american football and so they they showed showed a sort of a graph of some of the um peak volumes during a particular time period and there were peaks of you know 500 million events per day um but of course the aggregation of a graph hides some of the the sort of the per second peaks so there could easily be like 10 million events in a particular second when something yeah. particularly interesting happened. Um, so really, they they had uh, an on-prem architecture. They um, went through you know, the the various different subsystems feeding it. Uh, there the data was sort of streamed into the platform using Flume. And pushing it into HDFS, they built a bunch of Hive tables around it, and then they exported results to operational stores like MongoDB, Cassandra, uh, or even, and just also let them raw in HDFS as well. Um, the sort of the evolution of that architecture to cloud was actually pretty similar. You know, they they switched to um, uh, um, sort of AWS Elastic MapReduce. Uh, feeding Dynamo DB, and the rest APIs could either pull from Dynamo DB or from S3. Um, the only other thing they used was Kinesis, um, and that was the that was the thing that they used to replace Flu. So once they they'd got all of this in place, um, they started to look at you know what some of their options were for the processing. Previously, they'd always done. All of the, uh, the the processing or ETL style work using Hive, um, but as they were making changes, you know, did it did it make change, make sense to change a few other things? So they basically compared. Well, what what does it do if we just use Hive? Uh, what does it do if we rewrite all of our ETL stuff into Spark? Uh, and also, what to do if we rewrite all our ETL using Hive and LLAP? Well, rewrite. There's very little rewrite, yeah. but adapt it to use Hive and LLAP. Um, the the sort of interesting things about this was he set out some um, sort of s- some preconceptions uh, so initially that he wasn't really expecting. Maybe there would be some improvement. From Spark, but but probably not, um, just because the workloads are really huge table scans, and similarly from LLAP. There were a whole bunch of other sort of um, considerations, but basically didn't really think that the workload would be amenable to things like LLAP's caching and whatever. Um, But you know, wanted to try all the options anyway. Um, The other thing that they'd done is. Uh, fairly recently they'd done a lot of work on the um, partitioning and pruning and that sort of thing of the underlying data and uh, that was something they wanted to check to see whether that was really um, you know, really making a difference. So with that, they then um, sort of basically put a bunch of different data sets together of uh, 10 to the 5, uh, 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 and 10 to the 8 uh, or 1 to the 7 uh, 1 to the 5, 1 to the 6, 1 to the 7 1 to the 8th rows uh, they then were also testing across 2 nodes, 4 nodes 8 nodes, 16 nodes and 32 nodes and then they repeated all of those things using first of all Hive, then the rewrite into Spark and then Hive plus LLAP um, props for doing a really really good job Thoroughly really job, yeah. thorough job of that and also measuring the impact of partition pruning so with all that there were a few constants Um, all the tests were using M3X large uh, instances everything was in the same region um, all the same input data sets and also uh, they repeated all of the tests to get that sort of consistent uh, sample deal with that noisy neighbour issue and I'll get back to that towards the end Um, the results though were really really good so first of all Hive, you know, worked as expected, whether it's in-cloud or on-prem, Hive just does the job. Um, There were some kind of slightly weird things in the testing in that a two-node cluster had weirdly far more processing time than anything else. Um, uh, Spark was very similar in that, you know, two nodes of Spark, um, weirdly, strangely more than, than you would expect from that. But, um, and so, you know, Spark was, I think, slightly quicker than Hive. But Hive with LLOP was um, significantly faster than Spark. Um, and, obviously, it was faster than Hive as well. I'll get yeah. into some stats towards the end. But, essentially, all of the options showed linear scalability, which is good. That's yeah. what you expect. That's what you certainly hope for um, when you're buying into this big data ecosystem. So adding nodes reduces execution time. And they're talking about ephemeral workloads like this. They're talking about deploying clusters, running these workloads, and then tearing them down. So reduced execution time equals cost savings, yep. equals profit. Um, Spark you know, slightly outperformed basic Hive in some use cases by about 17%. But Hive with LLAP outperformed uh, traditional Hive by as much as 46% and outperformed Spark by as much as 35%. Um, All I can say is LLAP seems to do a really, really good job with their particular workload. Um, He suggested that it was to do with um, some of the things within Hive such as uh, the the prefetching, the the pre-warming containers yeah. and things, things like that, that were just way more effective than he was expecting. It was not because they were running these things on a on fresh cluster every time? Yeah, fresh clusters every time. Uh, in fact, he, this is one of the things he mentioned. is he was not expecting this because you know he would spin something up and the L A P caches would be dry, of course, because it's exactly. really, it's just been built. But you know the the prefetching seemed to do a, an excellent job. Um, so, he then gave a few sort of uh, migration implementation notes. Um, really, kind of too much detail to go through in here, but you know, comments around Flume versus Kinesis, um, some things around DynamoDB partition key selection, um, and also some some really good pointers around sort of a phased migration. If you're doing this, going from on-prem to cloud, some really good hints on how yeah. to do that. Um, but really, um, the the conclusions were basically LLAP approved execution times by as much as 46%. He was very, very happy with that. Partition pruning? Oh, this was the other thing. So when he was testing the differences that partition pruning made, um, the very best performance from Spark, so Spark with partition pruning, was... As good as the worst performance from Hive with Llap with no partition pruning, mm. and Hive with Llap with with partition pruning obviously was significantly better than any of the other options. But they it it fell into the same kind of same the the very similar space, which yeah. was a little strange or a little um, lucky or coincidental, I guess. Um, so q and I love a good Q&A so I asked the, the first question which was so he would mitigated for the noisy neighbor thing he re the test again and again to get consistent results and I asked kind of actually just out of curiosity how often did you get the noisy neighbor issue crop up um, and he said about you know once or twice in 20 so mm-hmm. you know between 5 to 10% of the time um, you know the noisy neighbor issue came up and he said it was usually just like one one host within yeah. uh, Amazon Elastic, yeah. it's laugh, do. Like. and exactly it is enough to really impact the results. Um, and I know that there are organisations that definitely go through. You know, part of the the bootstrapping of a, a, a of a new node is run through a quick few set of performance tests. If it fits in the 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 yeah. sort of the the um, the set of performance requirements you expect, then then fine, it goes forward and then. In- ingesting the rest of your ecosystem or infrastructure if it doesn't meet that then kill it off and spin up a new one
1: well, actually what they usually do and yeah it's spin up more than they need because they know five to ten percent will have mm. a problem and then kill off the ones that are worse performing yeah because if not you have to uh, you, you can get into kind of a loop where the new one you spin up is slow again it's killed again these start the yeah, time yeah, goes yeah. very much longer so just starting up ten percent more than you need which you kill off enough not again within search, a minute yeah doesn't really give you much more currency you have to fork over and you have a steady startup line there
0: yeah so really really good session I'm, I'm looking forward to that one uh, becoming available um, but yeah really nice so now you've powered back up again yes my laptop
1: is working again <laughs> and just in time to talk about understanding my no your crown jewels mm-hmm. finding organizing and profiling sensitive data across data lakes I think that's even longer than your titles were probably this should have been called Data Steward Service. Okay. Because that was what it's about. I understand why it wasn't called that, because Data, data Steward Service was released two days ago. So <laughs> it probably would have been, been this cat out of the back kind of problem. Probably. Yeah, you're probably right. But I could have figured it out, because it was a session by think FanCat. Mm-hmm. which was the same guy that did the keynote demo. And this was basically the keynote demo, but more in-depth, because it was a technical session, yeah. more of, of the... The, the moving parts below the thing let's say yeah so let's see let's start by ex- kind of explaining in, uh, in general why you would need something like this and sort of goes a bit like this you have multiple clusters some in america some in europe you have some in clouds and multiple clouds and you have data all over the place and you need to have some kind of central view on things like governance lineage data access policies and things like that again gdpr being a big driver behind here Mm -hmm. although i do see some use in this also outside from gdpr things i'll come back to that a later so there's first a bit of a general preamble let's say about why it would uh, would need this thing now this is based on the Hortonworks data plane service that was released uh two three months ago
0: yeah, Data Plane itself has been out for a little
1: while now. A little while now. I, I didn't I didn't really look at it myself at that time because it was a bit of a, an empty box at that time. Mm-hmm. But now you're seeing the Data Life manager, data life Cycle Manager being put on top of there. Data Steward is now added to this and yeah. apparently pretty soon CloudBridge is going to be added to that, added to that as well. Mm-hmm. Although that's not really available yet. Yeah. So then they started explaining how the data plane service is being set up, which means you have your several clusters, uh, which are typically, uh, you will need your Ambari, you'll need your, just going to scroll down a little bit here, Ambari, your your uh, DSS engine, which is a specific thing for this data plane service, or for the data steward service in this case. Uh, you will need Knox because apparently Data Plane requires Knox to do single sign-on and pass-through of these kind of things from your Data Plane inter-
0: visualization. Which is excellent because everyone should be using Knox. Uh, yeah, it will definitely help
1: using Knox. I mean, I like it because I know AC Inside on Azure actually has. It doesn't say Knox anywhere, but it's a proxy service. and yep. It's just Knox, let's say, <laughs> and that just works very nicely. Uh, so that's there you have your data plane service and on top of there you have then your data steward service entirely mm-hmm. convinced by the name i must say but uh oh well it is what it
0: is say it 10 times really fast dss 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 uh, dss always cheating and can't count uh
1: true true <laughs> true i mean why would i have, they have a big data platform for that
0: that's true that's true
1: so I'm just going through my notes here because I don't want to go, want to go through the whole thing in uh, in detail. Now, of course, uh, all the components of this whole thing are Atlas and Ranger. Yep. Those are things that are to making your A-back work, so that's definitely in there as well. Um, but the fun part was when I was showing the um, uh, the GUIs, the the, the the interfaces that actually show you all this thing. And at first it didn't make sense at all to me. He was talking about stuff and I about asset collections and things and what... When the demo started, I he actually showed what he meant by yeah. it, that's kind of when the, the the lid fell off my eyes. Of what's a, what's a, the, the yeah the, the light bulb came on. The light bulb came on because basically what you do in this environment is that you make a collection of assets, and you have to think like uh, this: like, okay, let's put all my customer stuff, which are being used by this department, into one asset collection, mm-hmm. and then I can use my ADL, that whatever it is, to give people access to that collection. And in that asset collection, you can um, actually see a lot of information about the data tables behind it. Now, at this moment, this whole thing is only Hive. Right? They're talking about, it's going to be Spark, it's going to be HBase. it's going to be everything apparently, but at the moment it's just Hive, which actually makes sense because most of the data is in Hive. Yeah. So it's not that big of an issue at the moment, but they're, they're all going to grow this out. Uh, but you could see a lot of stuff in there, and you. it also works with profilers. I was going to forget about that. It's not the same kind of profiles that uh, Metron is using. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are profiles that actually go to your tables. Uh, you typically add a cluster to the data plane, begin with a link to the Ambari connection on that cluster. From that point on, apparently, the profiler can kind of skim your uh, Hive Metastore, get information from it, and get information about what has BI information, what's... It's a bit like I've seen Waterline doing something similar as yeah, well, yeah. where you actually have the automated service of just these are the things you have to look at because this looks like a credit card number, this looks like a social security number, things like that, and you can have nice visualizations about, okay, I've got 10 tables in this uh, assets uh, container, mm. five of them have yeah. uh, PII information, these are the fields and you can also get a second screen where it actually shows you how much these fields are used, how popular they are. Nice. It also gave you information. This is something which is separate from GDPR. It gives you st- simple statistics about the data in there, which are, as a data scientist, I'm not going to call myself a data scientist, but somebody who plays with machine learning, mm. it's very nice to just see a little graph with outliers and medians and means and things like that. That's also included there, which is actually nice.
0: So kind of similar to the sort of, um, stats that you get with you know, R C tables or IRC file and that, that sort of thing but more, more developed.
1: Uh, I'm not sure what you mean with RC-tails. but This is actually looking at the data itself. Is it just a yes-no column? Then you have two bars. So you have half yes, half no. Yeah. If it's a number of age, for example, you could have a bell curve, for example. Yeah. Just, just for the, for the, for the person got looking it. at the data to actually have a nice feel, okay, this is this kind of data, yeah. and it looks wrong. Because I have, for example, what always happens is I've got my first column of a million entries and all the rest values are like 100. Okay, what's that first column? That's, oh, null. (laughs) Okay, my data was apparently all had empty lines in between the data rows. Yeah, Things like that. It's very easy to pick up, very easy to see. So I like seeing that stuff should be in every tool out there. That has nothing to do with the the GDPR. That's just for the data to be able to look at the quality of the data, stuff like that. It also gives you a, a single pane of glass was kind of likes to use that word, that, that phrase. I'm going to use it myself too. Towards all your Atlas policies and Ranger, uh, sorry, Atlas cate- uh, categories and Ranger policies you have in place mm-hmm. across all your clusters. At the moment, if I understood correctly, you would still be putting all that stuff in place on the cluster itself. But the idea is to have to actually do this. That you will be able to do this from the centralized DSS on your data plane service. Okay. And not entirely sure how that's going to work out in the end. But uh, that was about it. <laughs> Anything else I can talk about? Uh, they were talking about the profile. I was talking about you will be able to add your own profiler. So if you have specific data, Types some data, other kind of yep. type, then you will be able to do something like that. They didn't give any information about how you how that would look. If it's a Java class or a jar or something like that, mm. because that's future talk. But apparently that's something that's going to be coming in there as well. Uh, it's all being uh, connected together with uh, REST APIs. So even though they have very nice uh, UIs, which I think are quite useful, REST APIs are a must in this uh, in this uh, ecosystem. If you don't have REST APIs, you might as well go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's about all the things I talked about. It's hard to it's good radio to say to talk about UI. So if you haven't got a chance to do it before, and probably you haven't because it's been after two days. <laughs> yep. but, uh, yeah. But let's see if you can um, look at. Uh, I know, I know. Uh, uh, there's been some blogs come out from Hortmas. I'm pretty sure there's going to be some screenshots on there as well. Yeah. yeah. That's. Good. But there was some QA after that. One of the questions was how heavy is, a, is a, an installation of Data Plane? Because mm-hmm. this looks like a very complex thing. And actually, Data Plane itself is just a collection of Docker images, apparently. So, apparently, you do need some kind of footprint, but it's sev- uh, it's quite light, apparently. Because mm-hmm. all the heavy lifting, the profiler runs actually on your clusters. Yeah, That's that little DSS service you install on your cluster nodes there. That's all being pushed away there. And also, very importantly, that means that only the results of the profiler come back to your Data Plane. Your metadata, your data itself, never leave that cluster. Which Which is exactly what you want. Exactly. So that was a good question, I think, and a good answer as well. And, yeah, that's about it. So for me, this is a tool that's actually quite nice for people, for for organizations that have multiple clusters. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's useful for people that have one cluster and that's it. Because then you have a bar It should give you quite what you have already. They did also talk about uh, using this with ephemeral clusters and Mm -hmm. they kind of said, yes, you can do it with ephemeral clusters because there's a discovery thing and it all works. I have some reservations there because ephemeral for me means it lives for two hours. The profilers are things that are... Resource hungry. When you want to profile a, a, a billion rows, a table of a billion rows, that will have an impact on your clusters. So it's not something you want to do when you're running full production. And they also explained, yes, you can schedule these things in downtime. You can say how how invasive it can be. You can kind of. I'm guessing there's going to be a yarn queuing system yeah, behind I it. To I be, don't know. To be. But that means that it's, it is going to have an impact now on an ephemeral cluster of two hours, which means it has to go up, do my work, and kill again. I'm not going to say go it up. Let the profiler run for a couple of hours, and I'll start working. So I'm kind of seeing a bit of a mismatch how that works, except for the pushing down of policies and uh, uh, Atlas tagging, cool. because if the ones you can do that from your data plane and enforce that whenever somebody here boots up in the a cluster, this gets pushed under, yep. ah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, That gives you manageability centralized, and that's good. So from that point of view, I see it happening. But from the data quality, data inspection kind of point, it's going to be hard. And that's where I see a bit of a disconnect, because you, you can only do part of one without the other. Because as long as you can't do the discovery of discovering what tables have BI information, your atlas tags of PII and range of policies depend on that, won't be able to be implemented on that ephemeral cluster. Again, we're talking about future things, roadmap things that are going to come out. So we're going to have it's to wait good how question, that works. It's a
0: good but question.
1: in the ephemeral word, I mean, and the ephemeral again is a, is a word that's different for some people. Yeah, some yeah. people see ephemeral as a week.
0: Yeah.
1: In my life, it's a couple of hours. Yeah. And if it's a week, yeah, fine. The first night it does its uh, profiling. Next day it's up and running, and you have at least maybe some some delay, but you know that eventually it's consistent. <laughs> to to misuse that phrase, not ideal, but still. But for the very short lived uh, clusters, I don't see it. Uh...
0: So, but one of the questions would of course be, and I don't I don't know the answer, so I'm I'm just spitballing here really. But one of the questions would be. Um, could you spin up an ephemeral cluster and essentially profile your data, quote-unquote, which would be on your cloud storage that would run for a significant period of time, you spin that back down. The next time you spin up a smaller two-hour ephemeral cluster, I mean, it's going to get its data from your cloud storage. Yeah, from the central storage. Exactly. So if it picks that up, what I what I don't know is is there something within data plane that we recognize? Oh, you've just picked up that data. Yeah. I profiled that last week. I don't know what the delta, delta. I can profile just the delta there. I don't. I don't know.
1: As far as I can tell, no, because you actually have to add the cluster, and then the profiler runs on that cluster as an entity, and since mm. it can never leave the cluster.
0: That would kind of break it if it would go across. But the, but the metadata can leave the cluster. The, the, yeah, the metadata, I mean, I in terms of know. the what the profiler results, I don't know either. It would be a
1: solution, and um, but not because you will probably never spin up an ephemeral cluster that only uses central data.
0: No, but you, know. you but you could potentially look at just the delta. But th- this stuff I now, know I'm the not profile too. but other
1: tables. Because typically, when I have an ephemeral cluster, because I want to try to match this data with this other source I found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and from the keynote, you can create sensitive data from non-sensitive sources.
0: Of course, of course. And but if you're at least at least, you would only need to profile the delta between. Yeah. I know the answer to this. I know the profile it for would this data source. It definitely. The profile for this data source. I don't yeah. know the profile for that. Therefore, that must have the profiler executed. It's, on it. It
1: will accelerate it, definitely. Yeah. But still, in GDPR world, 99% sure isn't enough. True, true. So again, it's going to be very much... Also, quite often, the femoral clusters are very privacy uh, how to say this? Don't contain privacy information because the yeah. thermal clusters you don't. You you're just gonna have dummy data or anonymized. You're data You're doing there. a quick dirty. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe it doesn't even count there. Maybe. But it's something maybe. to look at. In any case, it's it looks like a nice thing. I'm still a bit in in doubt how it's gonna be uh, given to customers to use because he did show a screen where the clusters were added had smart sense uh, components. Mm-hmm. And that was a siren outside. Welcome to hotel room recording. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if it's going to be something you need a subscription for or not, that wasn't talked about at all. So, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that's going to come out when this stuff actually goes in GA. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, I'm just going to my things. Yeah, just as a, as a as a summary, let's say the data steward service. Uh, the idea behind it is to understand, secure, and manage your data in rest and in motion because it can cover HCP and HDF clusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was always talking about all the data in the in the in the organization but yeah it's HTTP, hdf Plus, of course i would love to put my oracle that's, in there as well that's
0: all the data that that's next that <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then he kind of uh, itemized things like, uh, what's it doing? It's discovering and fingerprinting of your data, organizing, curating your data, enterprise data catalog, which is a way of uh, finding out what data you have, which is, of course, important if you do GDPR stuff, data lineage and impact analysis, GDPR again, data, metadata, security. Uh, There's actually a nice uh, side note here that uh, at the moment, uh, securing your metadata becomes more and more important because since your data is already... <laughs> Most often, uh, uh, Dave, Dave is looking at the time. We're one hour in, my dear. Uh, your data is probably already okay, secured in a, in a certain way. But metadata typically isn't yet. And that also already contains enough information. And there's a famous quote by, by, I forget if it was a CIA, KGB, or some bigger thing that said, I don't need your data to know what you're doing. Give me your metadata. I know everything I need to know. So metadata security is then something that's going to happen. And the last thing in there was smart enterprise search, which uh, he didn't really go into depth on, but for me things, if you have a data catalog, you have a way of searching through your data Mm -hmm. estate, I guess. So data steward service looks nice. It would be great if that would really be across the entire company, because this is actually what I, as as a consumer, would like to see as a service. I can just put on top of all my data clusters, whatever they may be. Since it has Atlas under the hood and Atlas by design is agnostic and could be implemented everywhere, there is maybe a glimmer of hope that that's going to happen, but not this week, I think.
0: No, no, I, I think definitely not this week as it's um, nearly 8 o'clock on a <laughs> Thursday
1: night. <laughs> so that was a good session. I mean, uh, Srikanth is a good presenter. Was yeah. Had a little bit of uh, audio problems, but uh, that didn't spoil the fun. All
0: right. Over to you. Okay, so my next session was Forget Duplicating Local Changes, Apache NiFi and the Flow Development Lifecycle. FDLC. Flow development lifecycle. Yeah, it's a bit like software development lifecycle, but for flows. So this was uh Andy Lapresto from uh, Hortonworks. Um it it was it was a great talk. It was a really good talk, and the best thing about it was um, I've been waiting for this for so long it's basically <laughs> since since NiFi sort of emerged from from the depths and the darkness of the NSA I've been desperately waiting for this to exist and now it does and I'm a very happy person so those that are maybe a little bit less familiar with the things that I'm talking about here Nifi is an exceptionally useful and powerful tool for flowing data from A to B, doing maybe sort of micro ETL to it, adding tags to it, uh, you know, encrypting it, decrypting it, all sorts of handy, useful little things like that. Um, but one of the powerful things of it is you can essentially change flows on the fly. Yeah. CI um, CD. Yeah, I love it. Um, and I love it as well unfortunately large financial services (laughs) major enterprises, telcos, all go no, 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 no (laughs) we can't have people doing that we have processes and procedures and people that test all this stuff And no, you can't just change production with a whim and quite
1: often not by choice because of regulations,
0: right? yeah, yeah, yeah and sometimes by choice anyway um, so so and this has been a a sort of a continuous uh, issue and there were a few sort of um, half hearted steps in the right direction through through nifi 's life so we, we've had things like templates and you know you 've got the flow XML uh, and you've got the template XML and all this kind of stuff that you can maybe copy somewhere else and reinstantiate, but there's loads of problems with that and it really doesn't work very well, and it, it just it isn't what it should be, and it's not very nifi so where we are today, the nifi registry zero dot one dot zero, so that's not one zero zero that's zero one zero um, so very early production ready uh, yeah yeah, in production today um, very early release, initial release. But it looked really, really good. As you'd expect from the NiFi folks, UI really nicely polished. Don't have to use it if you don't want to. All backed properly by REST APIs. If you can do it in the UI, you can do it through REST. Um, and really, this is all about having a, a registry that you can publish your uh, NiFi process group to. Um, do sort of uh, you know go into the NIFI UI, make some changes to it. If if that particular process group is registered with the registry, it will say, "Hey, you've made local changes. Uh, would you like to sort of publish back a new version to the registry server, or um, would you like to underst- what are the, understand what the changes are between the version of the, regist- the registry server and this server?" Um, you can also instantiate a new copy from the registry server and things like that it's 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 exactly what I've been waiting for all these years and I'm so happy there was lots and lots and lots of detail in the session itself um, you know uh, how to how to run through it Andy went through um, a live demo showing it he went through some slides showing different things within it. Um, it's integrated into NiFi in that some of the icons and things that pop up pop up in the NiFi UI. But the NiFi registry is actually a separate component. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because you can have a NiFi registry that contains multiple different, uh, the term they use is buckets uh, because every other term was already taken and (laughs) they all mean different things to different people anyway. So, You could have your own development bucket. You could have a shared team bucket. You could have a test bucket. Um, And so you could do your own development of your your process groups. You could publish your, your version that you're happy with into the test bucket. The test team could pick that up and they could then run their testing on it and they could put it into the deploy to production bucket that they have access to. In a potentially even in a different NIFI registry, and then the production DevOps team, whatever, could pick that up and then could deploy that flow, that process group into production. So do I have to see this as a separate registry, and I can have multiple... Multiple NIFIs, NIFIs connected NIFIs to the same net registry. Multiple registries potentially connected to the yeah, same NIFI. Same
1: but I can have an OTAP uh, installation where my test is totally separate from my production Wi-Fi, yeah. but use that same registry and Correct. test sends when they're this is good, send it in there, QA can take it from there in their environment, test yeah. it with perhaps more data or more real, more real data. Yeah. they give the sample approval, put it back in with the changes and then okay. Yeah. It it's I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: no, it's great. It's great. It was it was great. It was it was really good. I was so happy at the end of this session. I, I just I just can't tell you. So yeah, it was really good. Uh, lots of good questions. Um, uh, you know, comments around what's you know, what's the future of the project? You know, what are the things coming up? What's the roadmap? And you know, it's it's version 0.1.0. You know, anything's up for grabs right now. There there are something like forty or so open Jiras. Um, some of which are feature requests some of which are bugs some of which already have PRs attached um, So, and, and there were sort of 20 or so items on the, uh, uh, on the wiki for it but it, it looks really good it looks really smooth it's not over it does what you need something like that to do um, it also sounds quite atomic. There's not that many dependencies with other projects. Yeah. So they should be able to make
1: good strides if they have enough, uh, enough people committing to it. It yeah. th- could just go very fast. Yeah. A couple of months could be enough to go to a 0.5 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I think so. I think so. But nice. it was really nice. I, I have nothing but positive things to say for it, which is very unlikely.
1: Well, that's for Nifer and Metron, because you never say bad thing about either of those. Metron is awesome. Nifer is better. And if you say no, then I know a couple of people are going to hate you for
0: it. (laughs) However, Metron uses NiFi, so it's doubly awesome. So, Metron is dependent on NiFi, so NiFi is a little bit. (laughs) Anyway.
1: Back to me. I've got one session I want to talk about more because my last session of the day was such a disappointment. I'm not even going to mention it. Okay. The one before that was the OMID scalable and highly available transaction processing for Apache Phoenix. Mm. Which was by Yahoo, by Ohad Sacham, sorry, excuse me. A very fast auger. <laughs> 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 I think he finished his uh, session in about half day all the whole time.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> so that was one thing. And I was a bit uh, surprised because I was expecting that ohm because I, I didn't know what ohm is. I heard the Ooh. term before. So, oh, it's a session ohm Let's go there. Let's see what it does.
0: We have actually heard about it before last year at the Yahoo session last year. Possible, but maybe I wasn't there. I was asleep,
1: possible too. <laughs> well, I was expecting from the title that this was something that accelerated Apache Phoenix. Right. It isn't. No. It's something Apache Phoenix needs, enabled to be able to do what it needs to do. Okay. Because it actually adds transactional processing, asset compliant transactional processing, to HBase mm-hmm. so Phoenix can actually do transactions. Okay. So that's it. You give a lot of back end information on how uh, this OMIT thing is doing its thing. Because, how you have to, if you, do, if you live in the SQL world, how do you transactions? You, you start a transaction, do your SQL stuff, end transaction, you get a commit or a failure. Yep. Simple how it works. Basically, with OMIT, you can do exactly the same thing in HBase. You, you set up a transaction manager, uh, you start a transaction, connect to that thing, which takes a timestamp. Then you do a couple of H-based things, you say anything, thing, goes back to Transaction Manager, looks if something else has happened in the background, if you're still Atomic and whatever, commits it or fails it. Pretty much the same thing. Of course, syntax is completely different. Mm-hmm. And he totally explained how that works, all the edge cases. What if you have a double write? What happens if you're doing a, a new index? If uh, the, the, the block is full? All the things you might think about that could break this thing, They've uh, looked at this and worked at this. And apart from that, it's something that apparently just works if you add it to it, and it allows Phoenix to actually do what it needs to do in a SQL environment. Totally uh, high available. That's the only thing I want to add here. I'm not going to go into details, because the details that are here, I, I need to draw diagrams. <laughs> it would be a <laughs> yeah, great <good> video. radio. <laughs> but, uh, so on the one hand, I'm a bit disappointed that it wasn't uh, something new on Apache Phoenix, because Apache Phoenix for me is still a bit of a... Do I really want it? Because I'm doing SQL and no SQL by, by 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 nature that seems wrong. <laughs> but uh, Phoenix for some reason it won't die. It doesn't have to die. I mean people like it great. And I know uh, Red Hat for example is, is using it a lot for their uh, uh, data the data extraction thing they're building. Okay. So yeah. It, Actually, it's actually getting a lot of uh, enterprise usage, so I was hoping that this was something new on, on Phoenix to show that it's progressing, that it's changing, but it's more of an under-the-hood kind of thing. But apart from that, good talk, a lot of information there, very fast. <laughs> I mean, you can see I didn't take much notes because I didn't have time to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pay attention. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. The one thing I'm not entirely sure of, which is a bit of a pity, is if it is already in it, or if it's something that can be added to it. Because this final slide was, you have this open thing and something else, and I failed to write down the name of that thing, but something that already existed had a very tight integration with Phoenix, but apparently for some reason doesn't satisfy, and actually created kind of an abstraction layer on top towards Phoenix, so both could be underneath there. So I'm not entirely clear if you actually have to. It wasn't move something it like again.
0: Calcite or something like that. Sorry, it? it wasn't
1: Calcite or something. No, like no, it wasn't Calcite. So Calcite is the optimizer for Hive. It's yeah. nothing to do with uh, this thing. No, it's actually also something that gave transaction to HBase, but an older thing that wasn't uh, as scalable, as fast, as had a lot of dependencies, but apparently not easy to maintain. Well, this omit thing comes from yahoo they've been working that for a long time this is actually omit version two or three or something mm-hmm. so they have some iteration there as well they have a different version of omit they have a low latency omit because they had a nice graph as well where having this transaction means you have this yeah, kind of a bottleneck with the transaction manager every every time you want to do something you have to go through that guy If he's mm-hmm. busy, you have to wait for it so they have now a version that kind of bypasses that too by not having, because the transaction manager by default has its own storage where he keeps his timestamps with transactions in progress. Yeah. Uh, if you keep growing that thing, it gets slower and slower and slower, of course. So there's a system where they yeah, age off that and store that transaction time in the age page table itself. Mm-hmm. So that's your single lookup state, remains a single lookup and things like that. So they have low latency versions, have different versions. And uh, so it was a bit of a, okay, is it still in development then? No, it seems to be production ready. Phoenix is using it already or not. That was was a bit gray area at the
0: end of the talk, I must say. So from memory, and my memory is terrible. So pay, probably pay no attention to me. From memory, it's Do something you can add. It's not something that's, in existence under Phoenix today by default?
1: I wouldn't think so because I haven't seen this transaction manager demon alive yeah. yet, and I've seen Phoenix environments. Yeah. So, um, I guess if you're using Phoenix without and you don't require asset compliance, then you don't need a transaction management like Indeed. my Indeed. So, but of course, and that's, that's the thing that I, I'm not going to say I don't like because it's a cool, cool project and it's cool technology and I love that cool technology. But they're forcing more and more sequel-isms on top of a no-sequel environment you have sequel already you have Hive Impala, uh, Drill, Presto you have a lot of sequel stuff why do you have to force poor little Hp to talk sequel
0: because everybody loves sequel anyway, uh, moving on <laughs> um, yeah, that's all I want to talk about okay. session-wise alright, so my last session was another really good one um, so this was uh, Eric Zeitler and Per Ulberg uh, from Klarna Bank, and their session was teams, tools, and practices for scalable and resilient data value at Klarna Bank. You win the prize of the longest title, I think. I think I probably do, or they do rather. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was a it was a really nice session. They they went through. Really, they're, they're a little bit about their journey. One of the most interesting things about what they were doing is really they, they had a really nice segregation between the, the sort of the different groups uh, within the organization that used it. So they, they called their groups essentially their producers, the people providing data, the consumers, understandably the people consuming the data, and the, uh, the infrastructure, and they had very clear sort of roles and responsibilities defined between the different groups. Um, some interesting sort of uh, things that they were doing and some interesting stats that they sort of flashed up, I luckily managed to get a picture of, um, <laughs> was the fact that they've, so they've, been, they've been on the journey for a little while actually. So they've been in production for five years. They've got about three petabytes of storage. They have, in that five years, had zero data loss and zero unplanned downtime. Now, you know, only nearly 300 human users, um, 280 machine users. Quite sure what the Terminator is doing, his (laughs) brethren. Um, He's looking for John Connor, of course. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Check the phone book. Um, 200 batch jobs per day. Nine thousand hive databases, and approximately or in excess of thirty thousand CPU hours burnt every day. Um so, Bitcoin or something. Well, so they they're doing a whole bunch of stuff. It's a bank. It's what you'd expect, yeah. but you know things about um, identity, fraud, risk, all that sort of other stuff. Um, they they do some interesting things with Hive databases and basically they end up creating brand new Hive databases every single day for every single data source. There are reasons why they do it that way. Um, it's best go and take a look at the session if you're interested in the detail behind it. Um, but the, it, it was just a, one of those sessions that they they gave a really nice... Presentation. They didn't shy away from really any of the questions. They were very happy to okay. answer. They uh, actually built a few things as well. So Hive Runner, which is a Hive test suite sort of thing, mm-hmm. exists out there on GitHub. They also have built a, uh, a tool for diff- essentially uh, diffing or comparing, um, and I cannot recall the name of it, Um but basically for diffing or comparing Hive databases um, it's not open sourced yet but it's very very likely that they will push it out given the fact they've they've already managed to get uh, Git runner out, sorry not Git runner um, Hive runner out there I'm sure they'll be able to get that out as well uh, comparing the data or the metadata uh, comparing the data okay um, uh, yeah row by row so so, um, so it was just a, it was just a really good session it was for me, it was the the kind of the perfect session to end um, end the summit on. Really um, great guys, um, very interactive, very animated. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it, and uh, uh, hopefully we might even get them on the podcast in the future. Ooh, that would be nice because yeah, mm-hmm. we have I've thrown out a couple of lines here at uh, we have the we company, have so. we have. So I mean. Thoughts, thoughts for the event as we as we sit here reminiscing about our our last two days.
1: Uh, a lot of work, a lot of tiring Has mental been, yeah. work. It's these things are always tiring, but a lot of fun as well. I mean, the organization was good. I like yeah. the way it worked. Still, as I, as I said already, I'm kind of happy with the fact that the 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 boots were kind of different this year, not always mm. the same thing. So it's mm. great. A good quality sessions, most of them. I mm-hmm. had, uh, had the one. Yeah, marketing session I fell for. <laughs> Dang, <laughs> it's always one every year. Yep. So and apart from that, uh, strong GDPR presence as you predicted correctly. I must uh, recognize you. my master in predicting the data work summit content. <laughs> so yeah, it kind of surprised me because if for some reason it's I didn't see that many GDPR focused sessions, but it was present in practically every session in some yeah. way shape or form yeah yes yeah. so uh, but that's a good thing i mean it's it's happening right? it's on the it's, moment it's isn't next it? month that's, that's it's, it's now thing. yeah so it's, if you don't talk about it now then should you so uh nope
0: sad it's gone looking forward to next year indeed indeed so i think uh i, I guess very similarly I mean, it's it's definitely a marathon not a sprint um i made life harder for myself by having a talk that i had Possibly not quite prepared enough for, but nobody noticed. Mean, <laughs> it, it, it all it all came good in the end. I got everything done that I needed to, and um, that went that went well. But the the feeling, the the vibe of the event, I thought was really very positive. I I didn't speak to. Anybody that said you know that they weren't really you know, like into it or they weren't really enjoying it, or no.
1: um, there every, was still something new, something exciting, yeah. something oh crap, I need to do something with that next month.
0: There's there's yeah. still yeah. new cool stuff happening. That's Outside. I think that's my that's my overriding kind of message is like there is still cool stuff out there. There is still cool stuff that we haven't yet seen. Yeah. There will be cool yeah. stuff next year. You know, and it's it, all getting
1: more and more polished as well, which is a bit of a sad thing for me personally because I like to see the, the, the little cogs and chains and the needs, and that's getting covered up nicely. Which means it's a lot more easy to use, and it's going to get yep. a lot more usage. Yeah, but uh, that's one little sadness for me. Cause.
0: But then, but the I would counter that ever so slightly to say that they're doing it properly. Yes. and what I mean by that is. All those cogs and, still there and, and chains and are still there. You can still go and pull on the command line chain <laughs> if you want to, interface with all these things through REST APIs. People haven't forgot their roots. Yeah, yeah, the log
1: files are still there, and if you have an error in your Spark topology, you will have that same error 20,000 times.
0: Yeah. Yeah, just just remember, <laughs> everybody, that there are several things that, that big data platforms do really well. One of those is, you know, you save save money or make money, depending on your use cases. Um, uh, the other, the other one is though definitely generate lots and lots of logs.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, most Hadoop. I mean, if you're the type of customer that can use the actual data plane service, you probably need one extra Hadoop cluster to to have all your logs stored in there. Right, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, before we leave, just one more shout out for the Code Motion free ticket. If you want yep. it, send an email to codemotion2018 at Yep, With
0: remember that it's an event in Amsterdam. You will need to get yourself there. You may need accommodation. You will have to sort that out themselves. All we are offering is a free ticket to the event itself. Two day event, so uh, yeah, should be a lot of fun. And we'll be there.
1: Yes, we'll be there doing a podcast live. I mean, Dave pulled, he, he wrote me into this. It's not my fault.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that's entirely
1: true, but sure, let's go with that. That's actually entirely false if I ever think about it.
0: Nobody will know. Yeah, the live Roaring Elephant Roadshow coming to an Amsterdam near you. Uh,
1: looking at the future, so next Tuesday there will be a small episode with the little but from the, from the uh, community booths. Mm-hmm. It's that thing after that there will be two episodes on druid back to back so there won't be a news episode for a while and after that comes out we will be back in our regular news topic news topic news topic cadence indeed and that's all i have to say i want to go to bed now after i did this podcast fair enough
0: and with that um First of all, once again, everybody that reached out to us said hi, shook our hands, um, patted yon on the head, took a <laughs> t- <laughs> took took, <Nice>. a, <laughs> took a roaring elephant podcast sticker from us. Um, thank you, everybody, for supporting us. The kind words, the the recognition, um, all those kind of things. It's it really does mean. A lot to, yes. to both Yon and myself and, uh, and and you know we, we wouldn't do this without all of you out there, so thank you so much. Um, this is the sort of the annual chance where we get to meet at least a, a tiny proportion of our, of our audience so thank you thank you and with that, that is about all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. we'll be back next week with a brand new episode, albeit a mini one of sound bites. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. See you there.